Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Faulkner, the co-host of Radical Respect podcast. And today I'm joined by my other co-host. Kim Scott. Uh, that is me. And we are here today with Denise, who, Denise Hamilton, who has written a book that I'm so excited to share with everyone because it is the book that every single person in this country needs to read at least once this year. All right. So Denise, uh, a little background about Denise. Denise is a nationally recognized workplace culture and DEI expert. She is the founder and CEO of Watch Her Work, a digital learning platform for, for professional women and All Hands Group, a workplace culture consultancy. An in-demand speaker and facilitator, she has consulted for and presented to dozens of Fortune 500 companies, including GE, Apple, IBM, Shell, BP, and Meta, among others. Her thought leadership has been featured in Harvard Business Review, Morning Joe, Fox, Bloomberg, Newsweek, and she is a regular contributor to MIT Sloan Management Review. Denise lives in Houston, Texas with her husband and has one daughter. Indivisible, which we're going to hear from today, is her first book. Denise, welcome. Uh, thank you so much yes. for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm we, more thrilled. Yes. <laughs> Wesley was saying he barely knows you and he already feels proud about how well your book is already doing. <laughs> so congratulations on, on launch. And we would love to hear you read the prologue to your book is the best prologue I have read in years. So thank you for writing it. I know it's a labor of love. And why don't you just start reading it? And, and then, uh, so for our listeners out there, we're not going to read my book today. We're going to read Denise's. And then Wesley and I will sort of jump in and ask you questions as you go. Perfect. Yes. And I'll take notes. <laughs> what does it mean to be indivisible? A few years ago, I was scrolling mindlessly through my phone when I saw a statistic about the maternal mortality rate in the United States. Black women were dying in childbirth at three times the rate of white women. According to a 2021 report from the CDC, the national average maternal mortality rate for Black women is 48.9 deaths per 100,000 live births, compared to 14.7 deaths per 100,000 live births for white women. Not because they were in rural areas or having their babies at home, not because they weren't vocal about needing medical attention or didn't have money for proper care. Serena Williams nearly died because her doctors initially dismissed her concerns that she was short of breath. She insisted she needed to be examined and the doctors found blood clots in her lungs. Black women were in the same hospitals with the same doctors. They just weren't receiving the same treatment. At a time when these women were most vulnerable, they were dying, dying from difference. I was furious, apoplectic actually. I remembered the terrifying experience of giving birth to my daughter and as a black woman myself, I was enraged at the deep tragedy of having to manage both con contractions and racism. I didn't die. I consider myself lucky but I shouldn't have to be lucky to survive. None of us should. Can we the pause there? 
Yes. Can we pause there? I just want to I want to I want to give some space for this tragedy because it is so horrifying and so profoundly wrong and so shocking. Every time I read about it, I feel apoplectic actually. So how, how like how hard it must have been very hard even just to write these words. It it is. It is because it's it's hard to believe that they're true, to accept that they're true. Because if they're true, how can we all not be in the streets like screaming yes. and at the top of our lungs? And it's like if it's true and we don't care, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. even know what that means. Yeah. You know? And I wonder, are there statistics about about other kinds of operations uh, that both men and women have. I wonder, are there are there different outcomes for for men and women? For I, I always wonder that. I've never read. Do you? Do either of you know? I I could say that um, the statistics that or the statistics that you're referencing about childbirth specifically. Just adding to that before I answer your direct yes. question. Is that it was normalized with uh, social economic uh, conditions, and still yes. black women were extremely um, uh, on the high end of of the the, the difference. Um, as for other conditions in men and women, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I know from a race standpoint, uh, I remember seeing an interview with doctors and old medical books that had. Uh, wrong information about the yes. pain thresholds of black people or um, the how thick the skin is for black people were still, um, s- still, I think it was like over 30%, like it was a significant percentage of medical doctors today still believe some oh of those God. misconceptions. Um, but for men and women, uh, I know that this is all anecdotal, but I've seen in the past, but I can't recall the exact numbers, that women especially... Uh, get told that they're being overdramatic, that they're being told that they should just lie down and calm down. Um, and yeah. a lot of their symptoms have been dismissed with, um, dismissed. And, and I think that also contributed to like, what is the number one cause of death for women is heart disease. Because um, I think it gets either misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. Well, you have to remember for decades, literally all heart research was done only on men. And wow. then it was extrapolated to women. So if they thought Wesley needed a dose of two pills, if you came in, they would just say, oh, let's just give Kim one pill. Like literally yeah. that was how this was done, right? And wow. and like, I think we're continually unearthing these differential experiences of care. And in, in the book I taught, I have a concept, I urge us to listen for echoes, Yes. And they, these are echoes of disparate treatment that we're still living with. And we don't always know how to name them, you know, but yes. this is a perfect example of an echo that needs to be stamped out. Yeah. And, it's, and they also uh, don't test with different hormone levels yes. for women as well. Uh, yeah. And if women who are pregnant, especially are, aren't um, serviced because they think that uh, why should we do that? Because it could be harmful to the kid, which is, also, but that means that there is a huge, vast emptiness of research in terms of what drugs are and are not harmful for people who are pregnant. Yeah. yeah. And the same can be said of menopause, right? Yes. This idea that 
you know, it's easier to just label women histrionic or ridiculous or whatever. It's like, let's study this. Let's study this like we study Viagra. How about it? Let's Let's give that a shot. How about we do that? that. Yeah, (laughs) I totally agree. And and I think the part of the part of what you read that makes me so enraged is it's like this very dangerous combination of power and disrespect that has got to be like, uh, I'm sure we can do all kinds of research and medicine, but like, there's also this psychological power and disrespect, like a, a, do- a doctor has power. And, and if they don't respect their patient, um, it, it's not, it's, it's not going to go, it's, it's a disaster, you know, for the, for the care of the patient and, and for the doctor's outcomes also, you know? Yeah. And I think there's also like the, it's a great kind of physical embodiment of the problem of this yes. conversation, quite frankly, because you have systemic forces that are big and macro and we're doing what we can to disassemble those. But when it comes down to it, that's one doctor and one patient. And yeah. it's wildly interpersonal. Yes. But that power differential, the vulnerability creates a space that I can lose my life because you don't think I'm as interesting as the person in the room next to me. Yes. That's yeah. wild. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. And I don't know if this is if this sheds light on the problem or not. Uh, but but when my my father, who's a, a white man, when he he uh, was diagnosed with late stage cancer and he had a he wanted to do one thing in terms of his care and his doctor wanted to do another. And he was weak at this, t- uh, you know, at this point. But he had got, you know, he had gone through his life, a, a privileged white man. And I remember he said to his doctor, this is my body, not yours, you know. And but still the doctor was blowing him off. And I, it was like really shocking to see, and and, and you know, uh, I think Kate Mann calls this empathy, where we have more empathy for the man. But I was like, oh, poor dad! Like I got really mad at this doctor and kind of lit into. Yes, it is his body, yeah. uh, and we actually switched doctors. But like, I think it was a lifetime of privilege that allowed my father to assert himself in that way, made it easier for him. Right. And, and I think he was permitted, you know, as so often is the case, he was permitted a full spectrum of expression. Right. Yes. Because if I get upset and I say, this is my body, yes. I'm an angry, I'm an angry, difficult, irascible black yes. woman. I'm impatient. Yes. I'm right. Like I don't have the yeah. full spectrum. I'm not permitted the full yes. spectrum of expression of exactly. emotions, you know, yes. and that is, it's so, um, it's, it's soul breaking to yes. not be able to even scream for help in yeah. a way that mm-hmm. I can rely on that scream for help being responded to. Um, yeah. And healthcare is way more important than food. And I know you can't scream at the people who serve you food. And when you think about healthcare, if you get on their bad side, then the the downside is so, so vast. So it's, it's also a real sensitive uh, relationship that you have to navigate to make sure that you say it in a kind way so that they, they, you got to force them to care about you, which is really, really awkward as well. And that's true throughout our whole life. 
that's been true my whole life. If I want to be promoted, if I want yeah. to make it home from a police interaction, if I want my child to be treated right at school, if I want to be respected in a store, there's all these parameters on how I can conduct myself, how I can behave, what's going to be acceptable and, and who deserves support and kindness and who doesn't. Right. So this is a, this is a really graphic example, but this theme plays out yes. across our whole lives. Yeah. Yeah. Every aspect of it. Um, and I think your book is going to help us move things to a better place. Uh, I hope, uh, because it can't go on this way. It just can't. Um, so do you want to, Denise, do you want to keep reading? Sure. Um, the next day I came across another objectively horrifying statistic. The suicide rate among white men in America is one of the highest in the world. And I felt nothing. I didn't care. I didn't care at all. In my experience, white men had everything. They were society's winners. They got the good jobs and the nice houses, and they didn't care about me. As a Black woman, my whole life had been spent navigating their rules and battling their countless arbitrary advantages. From my vantage point, they had every opportunity, and their wealth, power, and success were usually derived at the expense of people who look like me. Why do they need me to worry about them? Who cares what their struggles are? My sleep was fitful that night. I got up the next morning tired and shaken by my deep hypocrisy. Like so many of us, I told myself the story that I was a good person, kind, understanding, and inclusive. But when confronted with an actual situation that challenged my beloved story of the world, was I? That morning was the beginning of a necessary process of exploration for me. How did I get here? What did it mean to be human? How were we all connected? What is our responsibility to each other? Can we stop we, there? Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that must have been really hard to write also in a very different way. And that, that you're able to hold both of these sort of painful realizations at the same time is remarkable. So how did it feel to write that? Well, um, it felt fine to write it. It was hard to defend it. Yes. You know, yes. there are people who read this early in, early in the process of the book who felt like, oh, you shouldn't put that in there. Yeah, like, no, as, as you, you shouldn't reading. say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, no. And I, and I really felt strongly, I really fought to put it in there because I think one of the problems of, of kind of like the expert um, in our modern day society is um, we, we act, present, and conduct ourselves as if we're perfect. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is none of us are. Yeah. All of us are swimming in the same toxic soup. Yes. And do I think like you're toxic, but there's nothing about me that's toxic. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> that's, that's not how this would ever happen. And I think that... Um, you know, I'm a deep believer in the power of stories, mm -hmm. how stories inform us, how they shape us. I didn't come to this 
story easily. This is a hard earned story. Yes. I, I've been stopped on the side of the road yes. by the police. And, you know, I remember my daughter and I were driving on a, on a lonely country road. Um, and I, I share this story in the book. Um, and I think she was in like second grade and mm-hmm. a cop pulls us over and he basically says like, can I search your car? And he was a by himself. And yeah. I thought like, no, you can't search my car. Like, I like, I, this is what me thinking. You right. can't search my car. Like what you don't have the right to, this is yeah. not legal. You don't have the right to do this, but I had to quickly shift over to, yeah, but it's me, him and my little baby girl. Like I, I yeah. got to comply. Right. Cause they always yeah. tell you comply. And so yeah. I said, sure, fine, go ahead and search the car. And so he turns to me, like we, my daughter and I, I wake her up. She's asleep. I wake her up. We get out of the car and he tells me, for my safety, I need you and your daughter to lay face down in the dirt. Oh my God. While I search your car for his safety. He's got the gun. He's got the power. He can call the background. And by the way, you stopped me. I didn't stop you. You like, you yeah. created this situation. And now for your safety, um, I need to lay face down in the dirt. And so in my mind, like it's my, it's racing. Cause I'm like, yeah. this is ridiculous. It's the outrage. It's the anger. And I looked over at my daughter and she's crying. And I say, but am I really going to risk us being harmed? Am I going to risk yeah. going to jail and my daughter being in foster care in some, you know, town in the middle of nowhere? Like, like yeah. I had to run through this calculus so fast. Oh my God. And we did it. We laid down in the dirt, face down. And I remember my daughter was crying and I leaned over to her and I said, don't worry, honey, it'll be okay. And I remember Ugh. feeling so profoundly, that's not true. Yeah. It's not okay. Yeah. Right? So yeah. my feeling that I capture here is a legitimate, yeah. hard-earned story that I have yeah. in my head. Right? But I think that's the point. This is really the point of the whole book. Like, we all have stories that we have to allow to change. You have to let the story change or else it never does, right? Our yeah. stories don't give us up easily. And so when you are confronted with new information, what are you going to do? When you hear a statistic that, like I say, is objectively yeah. horrifying, yeah. Do you dismiss it because it's not you? Do you dismiss it because it's those folks over there? It does. That's not my business, right? Like, are we? Have we lost the sense that we are truly, deeply interconnected? Right? It's like we're sitting in a big boat, laughing at the people at the front of the boat because they're yeah. in the boat has a hole. Yeah, we're all going. We're all down. thinking, honey. We're yeah. all thinking. So this idea of like, what does? that statistic have to do with me. Yeah. That was what I wanted to explore. Yeah. And how, I mean, I want to put myself in your shoes for a moment, which I know is impossible because I I, I usually get, you know, unfairly kindly treated by the police. But like, if I, if, if I had been the one laying in the dirt with my, second grade child when I read that statistics statistic I I don't think I would have just felt indifferent I would have felt like good 
you know, like I would have felt a real sense of vindictiveness. Like how do you, which would have been not a good thing to feel, but how, how do you, how do you avoid feeling that? Or do you? Uh, you know, it, it's just such a beautiful question. It's a beautiful, fair, super honest question. And it really underscores like the incredible compassion that lives in the hearts of all marginalized people in this yeah. country. The yeah. fact like the fact that we don't run around screaming at the top of our lungs all day long sometimes yes. feels like a, a miracle, right? Yeah. But, but if I... If I want a certain level of compassion and patience and understanding directed at me, and I don't want to be judged harshly as, as having some particular type of behavior because of what I look like, I have to give that to other people. It's yeah. just man, like I, yeah. I have yeah. to. And, and, I, and I do want to say this. I do want to, it's very important. There are different, you're allowed to feel how you feel when yes. you have been harmed. Yes. Right. And I'm always very careful. That, and I always want to make sure that there's people who like say, like, be like Denise. No, no, no. Be like you. Be how you feel. You process it the way you process a harm that's done to you. I don't I don't police people's reaction. Right. I police the initial behavior that elicits the reaction. So my this effort like that I describe in the book is a constant effort of trying to stay open is prying the door open, even when really scary, horrible things encourage me to close them. Um, yeah. But it's an effort and different people are at different places along that journey. And I, I want to respect the individual's right to process harm in the way they see fit. Yeah. I got it. It reminds me of the, the, the trope of, or the 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 segmentation or of us and them and how it's easy to think of they have that problem and and not we have that problem and the compassion that it takes to be able to feel uh, compassion to someone who's in some ways a different group than you but i also feel that people who are like gold medalists in the struggle olympics have to practice that often enough that yeah. they build that muscle because they are trained to do so. So it makes it a little bit easier for them to have compassion for these different groups because they see it all and they understand what's going on. But also, uh, since we were talking about statistics earlier, um, and also since I see that you're based in Houston, I used to live in Austin. And mm. in 2016, I uh, ran for city council uh, wow. and I got third place. Uh, there are three candidates. Um, and <laughs> and so basically I had to put a lot of my opinions out there because um, yeah. you get interviewed a lot. And uh, one person who was a judge uh, called me out on one thing where I said that um, ID laws to vote, mandatory ID was racist. And he's like, I don't see how it's racist. Everyone has to have an ID and all this stuff. And then I said, well, if you look at the statistics, you see that people who are from marginalized communities are less likely to vote or have a harder time voting than people uh, when the ID laws are there than, than before they are there. He's like, yeah, but it's not racist. I said, okay, then what do you call it that these statistics are now known and the people are passing these laws anyway? And he gave a pause for a second. He's like, oh, 
<laughs> and and it's one of those same things where these statistics are out there. They're like, oh, it just is what it is. But the pe- the people's lack of compassion and understanding that there there is a choice not to do anything about it, that mm-hmm. in itself is racist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we're and we're um the word racist is it's so inadequate. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the most inadequate yeah. words in our vocab really sincerely. Um, um, you know, the Inuit people um have 20, 30, I think almost 40 words for the word snow. Yeah. Because if you live in a frozen tundra, snow is very important. If it's wet, if it's packed, if it's fluffy, if it's light, if it's heavy, if it's, you know, frozen, like it, like that's very important. We have the same word for someone burning a cross on my lawn. Yeah. And the guidance counselor telling the black kids, don't bother to apply to that school because you're probably not going to get in. Like those behaviors are so different, but they all fall under this big and so it's made the word almost useless, right? Like, because, yeah. because people are so afraid of being labeled or called racist or a system being called racist that they're going to defend it. Like, it doesn't even matter if it is. It's, it's worse to be called racist than it is to be one. And so, you know, that's maybe that's the next 10 years of my life is figuring out a new vocabulary because we're not communicating with each other. Yeah. We're not, yeah. we're talking past each other with because it, it, because it's, it's so difficult to talk simply and plainly with each other around these really complex topics. And like I say in this section, like, Everybody thinks they're a good guy. Yeah. Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing and they've got this figured out. And when you come along and you say, mm, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 they can't focus on the problem. They have, they focus on the assault, the and personal yeah. injury, the per and, and it's like, how do you, how do we talk about this then? Because if, if we can't name the problem, without you focusing on the pejorative nature, then how do we fix anything? And, and yeah. so there's this huge gap of how do we communicate with each other? Yeah, I think, I think finding the right words is really important. I also think finding the right mindset is important. So one of my favorite books is Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, about a growth versus a fixed mindset. And I think when it comes to racism, White people in particular who, who don't want to be racist need to adopt a growth mindset about this problem. Uh, I mean, it's another way of saying be anti-racist, I suppose. But the, because if, if we have this fixed mindset where if I say or do something that's biased or racist, then I am racist. And like that's an attribute that I can't change about myself. Then I'm going to resist any knowledge of what of I'm course, doing that's biased or racist. Whereas if I want not to be racist, then I need to welcome the feedback that what I've said or done is biased or racist. And uh, and Wesley and I have talked a bunch on this, on this podcast about sort of breaking down the problem, bias, prejudice, bullying, discrimination, harassment, and physical violence, and then sort of understanding 
the sort of the slippery slope that one thing leads to another. Right. And also even like how we talk about those things, right? Yeah. And there, there's like a whole category of behaviors that we don't even have a word for. Yes. You know? I think about I think about when George Floyd is literally being strangled yes. by Derek Chauvin. Yes. I, I've, been, I've thought about it quite a, quite a bit of like, why did he do that? He could have yeah. put him in handcuffs and put him in the car. He could have put him in handcuffs and left him on the ground. He wasn't resisting. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. why did he, he did not what, need to do that? Yeah. And I sat and I watched some of the bystander footage and it occurred to me why he did it. He did it to terrorize the people watching, mm -hmm. to let the people watching know I'm in charge. I have the power. You can't stop me. Um, people are running up, begging, pleading, yeah. I mean, even menacing. Get off of him. Stop. I can pull out my gun and I can yeah. stop you. There's nothing you can do about it. We don't even have a word for that level. It's The closest I have is terrorism. But that's yeah. not even that's not even the right. We yeah. don't even have a word for that. So when I'm talking to someone about a subject like police brutality, we don't even have an anchor point because you don't understand what that kind of terror feels yeah. like from somebody that's supposed to protect you. Yeah. Right. Like th yeah. there's not even an ex analogous experience that I can. I can refer to that will help you to understand unless I really slow down. I, exp I explain myself so carefully. I try to find the right imagery and I try to find the right language. And in a world that everybody's in sound bites and nobody wants to listen deeply, how do I get you to understand that kind of terror? You don't have to be a hashtag to be terrorized. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. so I think like this idea of like the inadequacy, the sheer inadequacy of our language, and then the vast, like, you know, uh, force of people who are committed to even bastardizing that language further. Yeah. If we come up yeah. with a word yeah. to try to explain intentionally it, misunderstand. intentionally misunderstand and put millions of dollars into everyone misunderstanding, yeah. like it makes the evolution of the language harder, yeah. which I have to believe is intentional, right? Because yes. there's money to be made in division. Yeah, right? they don't make yeah. money yeah. when we all get along. No. <laughs> Cat, and at the same Cat, time, they're banning the books that explain some of this as well. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so it is. It's it's horrifying, really. And yet, I think that, uh, you know, as you say, storytelling is so important. And I think that w and solidarity is so important. And I think that's how we get to indivisibility, like is that storytelling and solidarity. And, and story releasing. Yes, story releasing. Story releasing. Is a, I should yeah. put that in a book. That's a yeah. good little phrase. Doggone <laughs> it. And no matter yeah. how many of these stories are out there, people still don't understand the prevalence and how widespread and how the frequency of these interactions. I had a conversation with someone else and I was talking about some issues, my job history and stuff like that. They're like, What? But yeah. you're in tech. I was like, oh, oh yeah. I <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> it's not better. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I, you know, I, I grew up in Memphis and I sort of imagined when I moved to the Northeast, it would, you know, things would be, they weren't. I moved to California. They, you know, wherever you go, there it is, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I think, you know, this, Denise, what you were talking about, watching the murder of George Floyd and wondering what was going on with Chauvin, it's like some, there were no, at that moment, there were no checks. He perceived no checks on his power. And there were, in fact, no checks. There was nobody who was able to make him stop. Right. Uh, and and like, and he had some sort of rage, you know? And, and I think the, the checks and balances, what, what's often called white privilege is you have checks on the power of the people around you. Like when I remember when I was a teenager, I got pulled over by a cop. And he started leering at me, you know, I was wearing short shorts and, and, and I was like very uncomfortable. He was in the back of his car and he starts telling me he's gonna, he's gonna pull me over for vagrancy. I was in high school and I didn't have a summer job that year. (laughs) And, and I was like, what is he talking about? And, and but all of a sudden, like my my privilege asserted itself. This is the privilege that shouldn't be privileged. This is what everyone should have. And I and he's like, I'm he's he said as though it was a threat, I'm gonna take you to the police station. I was like, please take me to the police station. Anywhere but alone with you is where I want to be. But I had every confidence that you know I would do okay. In fact, I would yeah, I would the, be treated very police, well at the, the police <laughs> station. Got, was going to be all right for yeah, you. You were yeah, going to yeah, make yeah, it home yeah, from the yeah, police station. Yeah, I was going to call my dad, and my dad was going to come in, and that cop was going to be in trouble. Yeah. But he wasn't get. Uh, he was a little surprised that I, you know, I was I was a little uh, at my attitude, and then and then. Um, he sort of said, well, what's your father do? And now I know I'm off the hook. I'm like, oh, dad's a lawyer. But he still wouldn't let me. It was like, oh, he's one of those assholes. Uh, so I'm still like, it's still a little dicey for me there. But I'm, I can tell I'm winning. And then he asked me where I go to school. And I went to the fancy girls school in Memphis. And then he was like, oh, this is a dangerous neighborhood. I better escort you home. It was like totally a hundred. And I always feel bad about that because I could have gone home and I could have filed a complaint about him, you know, and I, that's what I should, that would, that would have been using the privilege that I had, but like, that's how it, it's just, it's strange to think about that, like to break down these, these incidents where, where he did have some checks on his power. He could get in trouble with me. Right. And he ran you through the, the test, right? Yeah. Are you worthy? Are you yeah. valuable? Yeah. Are you and important? I was like, of course I am. <laughs> right. Know? Right. And, and, and it, it's really funny. Like um, the, you use the word rage, like we're talking about Chauvin, like he had this rage and, and I always think, you know, it's weird how we expect 16, 17 year old boys that are stopped yeah, and literally harassed and cursed at and whatever by police yeah. to have self control and maturity. But the people that are the police, the, the keepers yeah. of the peace, don't the have peace that self control. <laughs> yeah, where's and their that, executive function? 
And disclaimer, 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 there are a lot of fantastic police officers in our country that are doing an incredible job and only want the best for the people that they're working with. Um, And and I always call on those officers to do their part to excise officers that aren't doing what they need to be doing. You know, they, they, they they're more empowered to do anything than the rest of us can do. Yes, absolutely. And I, and it's puzzling to me why they don't do more because, because the, 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 the people in their ranks who are, who are behaving this way are ruining it for the, the, they all have guns is why. Yeah, I guess. And they rely on each other for help and for support and you don't get a lot of points because you knocked on a fellow officer. Like, I understand yeah. in crowd behavior. It's in crowd behavior 101 yeah. that they yeah. want to protect each other. And, and But you're right, that, that protection has this reverse effect of really causing damage to the whole profession. Yeah. The unchecked power, unchecked power just never really seems to go well. No. Right. And, and, and you know, the other example where we've seen this is the Catholic Church. Right. Yes. I know so many people that are so deeply devout. Like they are. They truly, deeply love God and want to serve and want to care for people. And the ministry is their whole life. Um, but who, when you, if you stop a thousand people and you ask them, what happens at the Catholic Church? I guarantee you a pretty big percentage is going to talk about the priests and, and the pedophilia scandal. Yeah. Right? That yeah. was a small number of people. But those yeah. small number of people were let allowed to act in an yeah. unchecked manner, you know, any society, any group is judged by how the worst behavior of its participants conduct themselves. What behavior is tolerated or allowed? That's, yes. that's I didn't make up that rule. That's just yeah. human nature. Uh, yes. So it seems like you would work, you would work earnestly to make sure that your, your, for lack of a word, your brand is protected by ferreting out the bad actors in your environment. Right. But that's true for all of us. That's not just true for them. Like I have the option, you have the option to sit with somebody and they're doing something that is out of line, out of pocket. And because we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want them to be mad at us. We don't say anything. Right. And one of the things I try to do in the book is really try to get people to roll this back to human nature and assess like what is driving the choices that you make so that you can control it, interact with it, define it, redirect it. Um, as opposed to here's this list of the words you can't say. Yeah. Here's the list of the things you can't do. Cause there's no list. There's, there's That's long enough. No, I can't tell you how yeah. to handle those are the strangest emails that I get. I'm in this profession. What suggestions do you have for me? I do not have any idea yeah. what you should do in your pro- profession, but yeah. I have a sneaky suspicion that you know. Yes. You know where you recruit. Yeah. You know where your interns come from. You yep. know what you know what you look for in a candidate, right? Where yes. oh they have a oh do they have a sexy internship from Google? Yeah. Why is that important? That yeah. just means their mom had a friend at Google. Yeah. Like, like you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> you have to unwrap the things that you're doing and you don't need me to come along and give you some checklist. 
You need to read books like mine and get what's the concept here and how can I apply yeah. it in my own life? That's the goal. People, people don't want to do the work. They, they just want things handed to them. They use the lazy web. They said, just give me the list. And, um, and, and the thing about a fixed list is that it, it's subject to change, right? And no, and if you don't know the underlying uh, rationale behind all of this thing, then that just holds no value and you're unable to pivot or adjust or to kind of acclimate to a different environments because you don't understand the spirit of what's being trying to be communicated. 100%. Well, and 100%. Denise, you, you, you did the work in your book and you explained how you did it. Why don't you read one more paragraph? Because okay. I think this will answer the, the next couple of paragraphs will answer the question. Just send next time somebody sends you that, just send them this paragraph where I began to read articles. You educated yourself. I began to read articles and watch documentaries about this suicide scourge among white men. I learned about the factors that were causing them to take their own lives so much more often than the rest of the American population. I read about the loneliness epidemic, the isolation and the loss of community. I began to understand the part unfettered access to guns played in this battle. Most gun deaths in the United States are suicides, and white men, despite the narrative you hear on the news, are far more likely to own a gun, even multiple guns, than Black or Hispanic men. I learned about the socialization of white males towards stoicism, secrecy, and avoidance of mental health care professionals. I was confronted by a perverse tragedy. White men are born with advantages conferred by race and gender, but commitment to the mythology of their superiority was a trap. Loss of a job, failure of a business, loneliness, and under un underemployment. Every group experiences these things, but for some white men, losing status could be a death sentence. This is so so powerful. Um, what you're what you're reading now, and and the work that you did to come to this understanding, and I think like the word that you in in those paragraphs that most struck me is like this this feeling that you this need to be consider yourself superior is so strange. Like where do <laughs> Where where does that come from? Like, what is that about? Uh, I, like, I remember when when my my children were little, they were talking about their school. They went to to Ohlone, which is a a public school in Palo Alto, and they were saying our school is the best school in California because we have a library. And I said, well, almost every school, I mean, I wasn't trying, I was just, I was like, what is this? Why do we have to go to the best school? Like, where does that belief happen? And I said, almost every school in California has a library. And they were like crestfallen. <laughs> and I said, but that doesn't mean you can't love your school. Like, <laughs> like, what is that about? I think that we have wrapped up this idea of, um, capitalism and personal responsibility and like opportunity, the idea that you too can be a millionaire, right? Yeah. Or a billionaire. Us, Millionaire's not enough. Billi I'm so sorry. I'm so passe. I'm so yesterday. I'm so last year with millionaire, billionaire. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and 
the kind of like the best part of what's possible in America, like that, that aspirational story. And we do not understand the downside of that. Yeah. Um, I love Mike Rowe who does the dirty jobs um, series. And um, I think we have learned to disrespect work, disrespect um, people that pay their taxes are, 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 are schmucks. People that follow the rules are, you know, they're, they're marks to be taken advantage of. And this idea that it doesn't matter how much money you have, you need more. Like yeah. it's a constant competition. And, and more importantly, it doesn't matter how you got your money. Yes. Right? right? You can addict a whole nation to opioids. And just go ahead and pay some money and put your name on the way to the museum. Did right? you like, did you read Empire of Pain? I did. Oh my gosh, that book! It, it, I mean, like, like we have this Sacklers. weird um, yeah. habit of of enshrining failure, right? Yeah. Um, the the kind of the head, some of the hedge fund guys, some of the the uh. folks that kind of go into you know this company has been in this small town. It it, it employs two thousand people and it's been here for fifty years. And this financial body kind of comes in and strips it of its resources and pulls all the money out and then says, "Okay, our work is done. Saddled it with debt." And then we're yeah. shocked when the plant closes down yeah. and 2000 people are out of work and, Oh, why are these small towns in America dying? And we yeah. act like we don't know what happened. And those are the people that give the talks at the big conferences. Cause they're yep. the winners. Cause they yeah. were able to strip the value. I, I think of it as I call them extractors yes. in, in the book. Not I, have builders. A, um, I have a, a metaphor around owners and renters that we yeah. are overrun you know, with extractors. So in my mind, what's an owner? An owner is concerned with the long-term viability of an asset. So they fix mm-hmm. the foundation and the mm-hmm. electrical panels and the plumbing, the unsexy stuff that nobody's even going to see. But I know that this is how to preserve this asset for years and years and years to come. Mm-hmm. Renters use peel and stick tile. Yeah. Because they're temporary users of that space. They're, they're just here for the, the, when is the lease up? And then I'm out, right? And that doesn't, I'm not denigrating renters. I'm just saying we are not renters of this country. We're literally the yeah. owners. Yeah. And we act like extractors. We are overrun with extractors. And we have elevated these people and made them gods and heroes that not only are they not committed to planting trees for the next generation, they are pulling up the trees that somebody else planted. Like how can these be the heroes of the current American story? How did we get here? Right? So this idea of celebration of extraction as victory, it has to, it cannot stop. Yeah, it has to stop. I have two quick questions, and yeah. it just, just I'm uh, I haven't read the book. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy. Um, but is the the title of the book a nod to the Pledge of Allegiance, the Indivisible? Yes. Okay. It's the only place this, I've ever seen that word. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen yeah. the word. And, again. <laughs> and, and it's and it and it seems like, especially what you're saying in the last part is a, is a nod to American exceptionalism of like being the best and being number one. And only in this country could someone like uh, Martin Screlly, uh farmer bro, be considered 
a polarizing figure instead of a villain where because they reach the top or pinnacle of being like willing to rob rich, uh, poor people, uh, that they could, he could still be on other people's shows and uh, still be on someone's committee or board. Or, or who who is people who? Taking Martin, Martin Scarelli. He was uh, his farmer um, bro. I forget, but he. I think he raised some medication from like something like thirty dollars to eighty eight hundred dollars. Got it. Uh, and and people needed it to live, and so um, he that was eventually how he made his money. Yes, he eventually got sent to jail. Um, for fraud or something like that, and um, there's a lot you can Google him. <laughs> okay. But he's he's not been like I think he bought like a a very rare Wu Tang album like for two million dollars, and then Wu Tang said, "Please give it back because we don't want you to have wow. it." Uh, <laughs> it's it, it, it just that someone like that, yeah, uh, and 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 someone who is just considered like universally disliked. Um, going back to Texas, like Ted Cruz, uh, that still could be someone could be like, yeah, I'm for that guy. I'm for that person. Oh my gosh, I have, because... my best, I have the best Ted Cruz story. Oh, let's so hear, it, let's hear it. You remember the the freeze that we had yep. in yeah. um, 2021. It, like unbelievable. A whole state is with is without power. We are freezing to death. In Houston, we don't have that kind of weather. So people's houses weren't built for that. Even your fireplace, if you have a fireplace, it didn't really put out heat. Like it was really, it was really an incredibly tragic time. I don't think the rest of the country even understood how dangerous that, that, that um, storm was, but you, you've all heard how Ted Cruz took his family to Cancun um, because he wanted to avoid the cold. And I was talking with someone about that and, and I was horrified because I was like, wait, aren't you our leader? Like, aren't you supposed to be helping? And the other person said, well, Denise, what did you want him to do? He's not an electrician. Oh God. (laughs) And that's why literally all these stories are why I wrote the book. Like, how did we get here? Yeah. How did we get here where we find excuses for the most ridiculous behavior? And we've and because, you know, we have this like ridiculous reductionist idea of red or blue. How crazy is it to think that the whole world can be reduced to two perspectives? It's just the most asinine yes. thing in the world. But let's put that aside. But the idea that he's on my team, he's my guy, so I'm going to back his play no matter what he does. It was just shocking to me. And so we're in this space, again, extractors, you don't mind taking the paycheck, but when it's cold, you're going to get your family nice and warm. You're not going to be checking on your um, constituents or seeing what you can do to, to expedite resources. Like none of that was happening. And you live in a mansion in the richest part of town. Like what is this community supposed to do that's literally has people freezing to death in their beds. Like, and, and that idea, this, this like justification of extraction over and over and over again has had the most dispiriting impact on our whole culture, on our whole society, because now we've made it stupid to have that job. It's stupid to work like that. I don't know why you would do that. I don't know why that's been, everything is beneath everybody. So what we end up having is like, 
nobody feels like they own this place. This is my house that I've inherited and I've got to sweep the, the, the porch and I've got to mow the lawn and it's yeah. my turn, my generation's turn to renovate the kitchen or update yeah. the bathroom. Like that's what we're supposed to be doing. But everyone is like just in their Lululemon sitting at Starbucks yeah. and checked out. <laughs> and so what do we have to do to kind of remind people of the very necessary work of America. This is not this is not on autopilot. It requires an investment. It requires work. And instead of doing the, we're not only not doing the work, we're literally elevating people who are famous for not doing the work. For or creating for work for the rest the of us. Yeah. For other people. Like, how do we get here? And I and I want with the book to just remind people of their power. Remind yes. them who they are because we have forgotten who we are. We are living beneath our privilege. And yes. so how do we kind of lean back in and find whatever our work is? And there's a lot of messaging, right? If you're, you're I mean, you're over 22 and you don't have a billion dollar company. What are you even doing with your life? You loser, right? Like that's the message. We have all these messages that tell, tell all of us that we're nothing. Why? Who yeah. benefits from all of us thinking like we're nothing? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yes. Me, like, like we always talk about voter suppression. If voting didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying to stop you from voting yes. as much as they do, right? Yeah. So I just want to remind everyone who we are and what, what we're capable of, I think is essential. You know, that is a beautiful way to end from your mouth to everyone's ears, everyone in this in this country, because we should we should honor one another. We should honor the work uh, and and we'll we we can get out of this mess. Um, so thank you. You did incredible work, uh, a, le- a true labor of love, your book. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I always my my mantra is there's no greater gift than a gift of your attention. So thank you so much for reading it and for caring about it. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk today. Denise, thank one you. more time, the name of your book and where people can get it. The name of the book is Indivisible. And if you go to Indivisible now, you can see all the places that you can order it or walk into your local neighborhood bookstore, independent bookstore, and see if they've got it. And hold it up so people can see it, know what it looks like from those folks who are watching on YouTube. All right, Indivisible. Buy five or six copies today and share it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having on the podcast. And for those listening, and if you would have some comments on what we discussed today, please send us an email at hello at radicalrespectbook.com. And we would love to hear from you.